good morning, Freedom Village Church. Uh, great to be with you as always. Uh, good to see uh, a lot of familiar faces. Um, some I haven't seen uh, in a long time uh, because of all the COVID restrictions. Uh, and again, uh, if you are new with us, I know there's a few of you here. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us today uh, as well. Uh, well, uh, you already know this because, you know, we've lit, lit the candle and, and read the scripture. But today, uh, again, begins a really excited time in the church calendar uh, because we're entering into the season of Advent. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that term, um, it literally means arrival, arrival, because this is the time, this is the time leading up to Christmas that we remember the coming of our Savior. It's a time to, to celebrate Jesus' birth when God became flesh, when he came to dwell with man on earth. And so this is a, a very significant time for us um, as followers of Jesus. It's a time to focus on hope. It's a time to uh, recall the Lord's promises and provision. And it's also a season, we know, of, of expectation, where, again, yes, we remember Jesus' first coming roughly 2,000 years ago. And at the same time, uh, we anticipate and remember that Jesus is arriving again. He is coming again for us, uh, his followers, the church. Which means right now, right now, for those of us who belong to Jesus, we are actually living in the in-between. We're living in the in-between. We are living our lives looking back, knowing that Jesus came, he arrived, but at the same time, we are living our lives looking forward to the time where he will come again. Well, uh, to remember the arrival of Jesus during this season, uh, we're going to be studying through Luke 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be for the next four weeks uh, together. And, and the focus is simply going to be on Jesus' arrival. Uh, we're going to work through uh, the setting of his coming uh, the announcement of his coming, the person and character of the one who came, and how we should respond. That's what we'll end on Christmas, uh, Christmas Sunday, how we should respond to his arrival. So that's where we're going the next four weeks. Now, uh, before we open up uh, Luke 2 and, and jump into this uh, series, let me catch us up uh, really quickly on what's been going on up until this point in the story. And this will certainly uh, be familiar to a lot of you, uh, but perhaps for some of you, uh, this will be, be brand new. But in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, we're introduced to an angel uh, named Gabriel. And what we see is that Gabriel, he makes a few uh, different appearances uh, in this chapter. First, we see he shows up to a man named Zacharias uh, to tell him uh, that he will have a son who we know as John the Baptist. And then more significant for our time today, we see Gabriel uh, appears to a virgin girl named Mary, uh, who was probably 13 to 15 years old at that time, and who was living in the city of Nazareth, which is in northern Israel. Okay, you can still go there today. Now, about Mary, uh, we also know about her that she was 
engaged to a, a young man whose name was Joseph. Um, Joseph, we know, was a descendant of King David, and he was from the tribe of Judah. Really significant. We'll get to that in a minute. And so Gabriel appears to Mary. He appears to her at, at night, and this is what he says to her. He says, Mary, Mary, the Lord has found favor with you, and he is with you. But more than that, this is Luke chapter 1, verses 33, 31 through 33. Gabriel says this to her. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Bottom line, um, Gabriel says, you're going to have a baby. He will be your son. But listen, he is also going to be the son of God. He, he is in the line of King David. And so he is going to reign over the throne that was promised to David hundreds of years before. And unlike any other king before him or any king that will follow after him, his reign, his reign will have no limit and no end. He's going to be, in our translation, modern translation, kind of a big deal, okay, is Jesus. And so if you were Mary, if you were Mary, um, how would you respond? How would you respond to the angel that night? Well, probably, probably the exact same way that she does. Because she says back to the angel Gabriel, she says, there's no way, right? Translation, she says, this is impossible, particularly because I'm a virgin. And at that, Gabriel responds back. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, this is going to be a miraculous conception. A miraculous conception. Uh, this might sound impossible to you, but God is literally going to plant life within you, Mary, without a man. And how can we be sure of this, Mary? How can I give you sort of a, a guarantee that that's going to happen? It's in verse 37. This is something, by the way, we all need to hear at times. Actually, a lot of times. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Well, at that, Mary responds with faith. She is a faithful young woman. She believes in God's promise. And then Gabriel leaves. And from that moment, as you work your way through Luke 1, what you see is you see worship. You see uh, songs of praise and adoration that Jesus is coming. But ultimately, in this season, we are left with hope, expecting and anticipating Jesus, the coming king. That's Luke chapter 1, okay? And then now we turn over to Luke chapter 2. And as we do, as we do that, I want to show you today the setting that surrounds this great arrival 
I want to attempt to bring us into this story once again. Maybe for some of you the first time, some of you the hundredth time. I want to bring us into this story and show you three different settings that I believe will ultimately lead us to see that God is in total control and that he fulfills his promises. That's my aim for us today. I want you to walk out of here knowing and seeing that God is in control, total control. He is sovereign and that he fulfills his promises. And so we begin with the first setting today, which is the world setting. That's where we start. We're going to go big and then we're going to get small. The world setting is where we begin. So look at me, look with me starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, and that's the days when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and Mary, the happenings of chapter 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So here we are introduced to Caesar Augustus. But we know his actual name was Gaius Octavius, okay? Or other places in your history books call him um, Octavian, Octavian. We know that the term Caesar uh, was just a title. It meant king or emperor. And the term Augustus literally meant uh, to be revered or honored one. And so we have this man, Octavius, um, and we know about him historically. He was a, a great he was a great ruler. Uh, he ruled the Roman emperor, uh, empire for, for roughly 45 years, and he was brilliant, brilliant, um, a very good leader. Throughout his reign, the entirety of his reign, um, he did nothing but expand the empire that he was overseeing. And he was actually, you could look this up another time, I'm not going to talk about the Pax Romana, <laughs> look it up yourself. But he was actually the one who was responsible for implementing and creating the Pax Romana, which we know created a time of of total peace, really, uh, throughout all of Rome. So people loved him. They loved this man uh, to the point where they actually, many actually worshipped him as a god. We know that historically. And, And sort of ironic, ironically, particularly if you know the Christmas story, But many throughout the empire um, actually referred to Octavius. They called him the savior of the world. That's what they referred to him as, the savior of the world. And so Luke tells us here from the start that this savior of the world, who knew absolutely nothing about the birth of the true savior, he just, let's say it this way, he just randomly he just so happens to decide that a census needed to be taken throughout his entire empire. Right? And so what did he want to do? He wanted to count the people. And why? Why did he want to count the people? Well, the main reason for that was for taxation. Right? So he wanted to record all the citizens under his rule. The text says the whole world, the world, meaning, meaning everyone under Rome, so that he can then turn around and tax them. Well then, just for further detail, Luke tells us that this registration, this first registration was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
And if you want, again, you can do some research on this, or you can just trust, trust me on it. But that gives us a date of 8 BC, okay? 8 BC for this census being issued, okay? That's the year that we're in here, all right? But does that mean that Jesus was born in 8 BC? Actually, no, okay? No. The census was issued in 8 BC, but we also know historically that the Jewish people delayed the census for a few years, mainly because they just hated the idea of paying taxes to Rome. They hated the Roman Empire, and so they delayed this census. And so when it says, everyone went to their own city, or everyone went to their own town for the census, for the registration, we know, historically, that's somewhere between 6 to 4 B.C., which is actually the time that Jesus was born. Some of you are like, what? He wasn't born on like 0 or 1? He wasn't, okay? Um, The guy doing the calendar made an error. Right? He, he forgot to count one of the emperors. Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. So just in this short few verses we have, Luke one, uh, 2, 1 through 3, we're covering a 2 to 4 year period. Time goes really quickly in these verses. Okay. So there's one more thing that I want to point out to you, and that's in verse 3. That when it tells us that everyone, everyone was going back to their own town, that as far as we can tell, and there's been extensive research done here, as far as we can tell, this was not a requirement of Rome or from the Roman Empire itself. Actually, okay, the Romans had no reason to care, actually, for, for where you registered. They didn't care which town you registered in. They just wanted the money. Okay? As long as you paid them, as long as you paid your taxes, it didn't matter to them where you registered. And so what that tells us or what history tells us is that the Jewish people themselves, they are the ones that decided that everybody should go back to their own town. And the reason for that was because they cared so deeply. They cared so much about their genealogy. They cared uh, deeply about their history and their records and their ancestry. And so they, they are the ones, as the nation of Israel, they ordered everyone to register back into their original tribe, to go back to the original town where they came from, where their tribe was from. And so I know as we're even just starting today, there's a lot there. There's a lot of historical details. And you might be sitting there right now and you're asking yourself, why is all this necessary? Right? I came here to listen to a sermon, not a history lesson. Right? I'm done with school or some of your history teachers. Right? So why am I listening to this? Well, um, I, share, I share all these details with you, and I believe that Luke intentionally puts them here in the narrative, in the birth narrative, because these details actually reveal to us so much about how truly amazing God is. You see, we know, we know without a doubt, we know without a doubt that God is the one who actually orchestrated, he was the one behind the scenes of all of this. For Jesus to be born at the right time, in the right season, the right place, God actually had to move the mind of a Caesar who who knew nothing about the Old Testament and who knew nothing about the the coming Messiah. Beyond that, we see here that God actually uses not biblical mandate, but uses Jewish tradition 
to ultimately force Joseph and Mary to go back to Bethlehem to the town where Jesus had to be born. He had to be born there. And we're going to see again why that is in a minute. And so understand this. All of these political strategies and national traditions, they right now, at this time, they are seamlessly weaving and working together at the exact same time to fit into the purposes and the plans of God. And so what this world setting is revealing to us is that God is amazingly sovereign. He's amazingly sovereign. It shows us that he is and was in total control. It assures us that his plans will always come to pass, meaning meaning that we can and should trust in the Lord's faithfulness and in his promises. Well, moving on, moving on. Second, we see here Luke provides us with the national setting. The national setting. So we're going to see here this shift from the world, as it's called, or that's the Roman Empire, to the land of Israel itself. And we see this happen in verses 4 to 5. Look at the text again with me. Luke says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, or the one he was engaged to, who was with child. I want you to see this map here. You can see on this map, um, you see there in the top, it's the top right for you, okay, um, over here. Um, but Nazareth there is to the north. You can see it there in the north. And, and, and Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, the region, region of Judea, is just south of it, okay? And so what happened is they literally, they were traveling from the north to the south. But verse 4 says that they went up, right? And that's because we know that Bethlehem was at a much higher um, elevation, right, than Nazareth. And so we kind of have this mental picture now. Um, She is eight months, maybe, maybe more, nine months pregnant and trekking up this mountain, right? Because they got to do the census to get to Bethlehem. That's what Luke is saying. So you kind of have this mental imagery in your mind. And then we see here Luke gives us all these names, right? Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, Bethlehem, right? All of these very significant, meaningful Jewish cities and and regions. And the reason that they're so important, particularly Bethlehem, was because the Jewish scriptures we know in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was very specific about where the Messiah was to be born, where he was going to be born. In fact, look at what the prophet Micah says, 700 years, I want you to get that in your head, 700 years before these events here in Luke chapter 2. This is Micah 5, verse 2. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Okay? That's the original name of Bethlehem, by the way. Okay, they shortened it for all of our sake. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In In other words, you're very small, You're very insignificant in comparison to the other clans and the people around you. And then Micah says, From you shall come forth for me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel. Again, don't miss this. This is 700 years before the events of Luke chapter 2. And not only that, it's 300 years after the time after King David. Okay? It's a long time. Imagine sitting there now, a lot of you have journals. Imagine right now you writing something, okay, putting it in a book, sealing it away, and then in the year 2721, it coming to pass. Imagine that. It's a long time, okay? Micah writes that. But how do we know, because some of you, or maybe you were like me a, a while ago, and you're a skeptic, you're like, well, I know it says that, but how do we know that this predicted, that this ruler here, this ruler over Israel is the Messiah? How do we know that he's the Christ, not just some earthly king? Well, because the next line of the text tells us. It says, whose coming forth is from old, and then here's the key, from ancient days. Okay, that's a, another translation actually says it this way, from the days of eternity. That's a much better translation of the Hebrew, actually. He's from the days of eternity. In other words, Mike is telling us, he, this person, this coming king, is an eternal being. That's what Micah is, is writing to us here. That there will be a ruler born in the town of Bethlehem who has actually been alive forever. Right? Try to wrap your minds around that. It's very specific. And so Luke wants us to understand that's what's taking place now. And actually, every Jewish person, every Jewish person, who was waiting for the coming Messiah, knew this fact, knew this detail. They knew that this town, little Bethlehem, was going to be the place of this event. And now here, we have Joseph and Mary on their way to that region, to that city. To the city where King David was born also. Are you following me? Right? This, this here, what we're reading, it's not a coincidence, in other words. Joseph was born, Joseph was born in the line of David. And they are about to arrive in Bethlehem, a place that is not their home, but where they're originally from, while Mary is nine months pregnant. Right? You need to see this. All this is happening within God's perfect plan to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill his promises. It's the Lord, it's the Lord himself who is getting Joseph and Mary to exactly where they needed to be. The Messiah was a son of David, and therefore he was to be born in the city of David. God is sovereign, he is in control, and he always keeps his promises. We're seeing that unveiled to us in the beginning of Luke 2. So so now we have the world setting Okay? We also have the national setting. And through it, again, we're seeing God weave together. He's weaving together Roman strategy, Jewish tradition, and now here he's weaving together Old Testament prophecy. And now we turn to the final setting presented to us by Luke, and that's the personal setting. The personal setting. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Certainly all of these settings are significant. They are. Uh, but this might be my favorite uh, because it just really does personalize this story and make it so relatable to us. And so look at what happens in verse 6. In verse 6. It says, 
And while they were there, so we're in Bethlehem now, right? We don't know exactly where in Bethlehem. We don't know how long. But we do know it's at least been several days because it says, and while they were there, the time came for her, it's Mary, to give birth. And we also know another detail from verse 7. Luke tells us that there was no room for them in the inn. So they get to Bethlehem, there's no room for them in the inn. Now, remember, um, keep in mind, okay, we're in this story. Bethlehem is a very small and mostly insignificant town. So as it was, right, there was most likely not a whole lot of places to stay. Okay, but apparently, with all these people coming back into Bethlehem to do this registration, to do this census, combined with all of the Jewish and the Roman officials who were there in the town to take the census, there's nowhere to stay. Okay? Occupation is full. So we don't know a whole lot here. We don't have a ton of details. But what we do know is, again, they are in Bethlehem. They are there for some number of days. And now we see uh, sort of a surprising detail. But they were homeless while they were there. Okay? The inn was full. No place for them to stay. But again, we need to keep in mind, this is all part of God's plan. All part of his plan. Because then then the highlight of human history takes place. The highlight of human history. Look at this with me. And she gave birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Emmanuel, God with us. Our Lord, our King, who is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, now confined to a body, most likely under 10 pounds or 4.5 kilograms, depending on your measurement you like. The God who created all things, who breathed life into existence, is born of a woman, and that day breathed his first breath as a baby. The God that we are now, we are fully and always have been fully dependent on, makes himself fully dependent. We can miss this. He makes himself fully dependent on two teenagers. These are perhaps the greatest words ever written in human history right here. She gave birth. And it's important that Luke specifically says, by the way, that Jesus is the firstborn. Very important that, that, that he writes that. And there's a, num- there's a number of reasons why that matters. First of all, and this isn't as important, but it is a reminder to us that Mary did have other children after Jesus. Okay, that's, that's important for us to know. She did have other children uh, after Jesus, the Catholic Church, we know, and other, some or, other Orthodox traditions, the Catholic Church denies that reality. Okay, but in various places in the Gospels, and, and, and even in the book of Acts, we can read about Jesus' blood relatives, including his brothers and his sisters, including the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right? the, the Apostle James. Right? She had other children, but Jesus is the firstborn. 
But more important than that, we need to understand that being the firstborn, particularly in Jewish culture, meant that Jesus had the right to the inheritance. It's very important detail, right? Now, Joseph and Mary didn't have a lot to leave him as an inheritance, right, as far as we know. There's no indication um, in, in history or in the biblical narrative that they had any status whatsoever in society. But, but, this is huge. What they did have, Joseph and Mary, was the right to the throne of Israel. They were rightful heirs to the throne of Israel. Again, we know that Joseph and Mary were born into the line of King David. And while there hadn't been a king in Israel in a very, very long time, something like 600 years before this, right before the Babylonian captivity, you can read about that in the book of Daniel and other, other uh, of the prophets as well. But we know that even though it had been a long time, Jesus had the right, he had the right to rule on the throne of David because he was the firstborn born into a royal lineage, born into a royal line. And he also had the right to be God with us. Emmanuel, the eternal king who would rule his kingdom forever because he was the firstborn of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, as was predicted, as was prophesied, 750 years before the night of his birth. Prophet Isaiah tells us this. And so we have this child who is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah, the one who was and is and is to come. And so what does Mary do when he is born? What's her response? Does she throw a party? Does she start a parade? Verse 7 tells us, this is what she does. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in a manger. Translation. This was a normal birth. Just like every other birth. Mary is a, a typical Jewish mother. And at least in the flesh, Jesus is a typical Jewish baby boy. And so Mary swaddles him. Wraps him as is typically done to newborns. There were no royal robes presented, no fancy crown. He didn't come, as is depicted in the painting sometimes, with a little halo over his head. And he wasn't placed in a royal, fanciful crib. No. He was laid in a manger. A feeding trough, actually. And all indication points us to the fact that Joseph Mary and Jesus spent their first few nights together as a family in a stable with animals. The Son of God, born in a stable, laid in a manger by his teenage parents. You see, when Jesus came into the world, it wasn't under the best circumstances certainly wasn't under the most comfortable conditions. But doesn't this tell us so much about the character of God? That when God came to earth, he came 
all the way down to us. Humble. Humble. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 tells us this, that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself, humbled himself, yes, in coming as a baby. But we know later, after living a perfect life, perfect life, he would humble himself even more, even more, by ultimately becoming a substitute for sinners like you and like me and dying on the cross. The beginning of Luke 2 shows us very clearly that God is in total control. It tells us just through a setting, just setting the scene, don't skip the the scene. It tells us that God keeps his promises. God even moves if he needs to. He even moves the minds and hearts of kings who don't believe in him to see his purposes and his plans come to pass. From the big picture, a worldwide registration, down to the nitty-gritty details of one specific couple who needed to be in Bethlehem, God is over and above all things. And knowing that, knowing that, how much, how much, church, should we trust him? How sure should we be that God will continue to be faithful and continue to keep his promises to us? That day, that day that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, there was no room for Jesus at the inn. And unfortunately, unfortunately for so many of us in our world today, That's still the case. There's no room for Jesus in our lives. We're too busy. We're too preoccupied with with life. We desire and long to go our own way, to make our own path forward because we desire control and because we believe that we can find happiness on our own. And so this season, this Advent season, my prayer for you and I, is that we would put our hope in the one who gives hope. That we would surrender control of our lives, knowing and believing, again, that God is in total control. He is sovereign. This Advent season and moving forward into the next year, let's stop looking to other things, to other people, other places for a better life, for for more hope, for more peace for more joy and instead let's continually turn to Jesus the one who promises fullness of life promises fullness of peace and promises total joy that day in Bethlehem that day in Bethlehem she gave birth because God keeps his promises amen